Hello, and welcome to the sixth installment of Hodelpack's Crypto and Congress podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Wordy. Like our last episode, instead of interviewing a member of Congress, today we'll be speaking with another crypto insider with a unique view on regulation and policy. Our guest today is Jake Trevinsky, who, along with being general counsel at Compound Labs, the creators of the Compound Interest Rate Protocol, is also a founding board member at Hodelpack. And just like our guest last week, Jason Somensato, Jake is one of the best translators in the ongoing conversation between the crypto and policy-making communities, and I think one of the best people at describing the values of crypto in a way that anyone can understand. So without further ado, Jake, welcome to the show. Hey, Tyler. Thanks for having me. So you're our second non-congressional guest in a row. Uh, your friend Jason Somensato was last week, and I usually ask members of Congress how they ended up in politics, but instead I'll ask you, like I asked Jason, how did you end up in crypto? Absolutely. So... Um, I am general counsel at Compound Labs, which is a software company that builds uh, protocols in the crypto industry. Um, primarily, we are the original developer of the Compound Protocol, which I can explain a little bit more about later. Um, in terms of how I ended up general counsel at a crypto startup, so I uh, started my legal career at a law firm called Baker McKenzie in their DC office. Uh, and I was doing mostly anti-corruption and anti-money laundering compliance and investigations, and a lot of that for uh, very large financial institutions. So at, at the start of my legal career, I got to see sort of how the sausage is made in the finance industry. And this was all very shortly after the global financial crisis, which, which really shaped a lot of my practice. Um, and, you know, my experience of the financial crisis uh, was very much one of watching a lot of widespread um, misconduct and misbehavior among financial institutions, uh, you know, activities that were very lucrative and profitable for them and, and perhaps um, not so great for the rest of the country. And then there were really not a lot of consequences for most of the folks who had been engaged in those activities, uh, nor for the financial institutions that had caused so much harm. Um, so, you know, that was sort of my, uh, my introduction to finance. Uh, after working at Baker McKenzie, I took a break from private practice to do a judicial clerkship with a federal district judge. And then I came back to D.C. and worked for another law firm called Cobra and Kim, uh, which is a litigation boutique focused almost exclusively on financial fraud and misconduct. You know, really came to think that uh, there was some real innovation that was needed in finance, that the finance industry had become a system that was, um, you know, very slow, very complex, very expensive. Uh, not particularly helpful uh, for the vast majority of people um, and really only set up to benefit the few. And around the same time, I came across cryptocurrency. I started learning about Bitcoin and Ethereum and other blockchain-based crypto networks. And to me, what it looked like was a technological solution to this problem of what the finance industry had become, that you could use engineering to address some of those problems at their fundamental level by creating an open financial system that was available to everyone and could be used um, you know, very easily and at very low cost. Uh, so you know, that really got me excited about this technology. 
and uh, made me think that I wanted to jump in full time. And so I, I decided to uh, to leave private practice and move in house. And I, I was um, very lucky and fortunate to find a position at a great company like Compound. Compound is one of the leading projects in DeFi or decentralized finance, which is the part of crypto that is focused on creating a new financial system that you said you were inspired to be a part of. So can you explain to our listeners what the Compound Protocol is and how it relates to that mission of creating a new financial system? So for starters, the Compound Protocol is part of this space that we're all calling decentralized finance or DeFi for short. And basically the idea of DeFi is to do for the entire financial system the same thing that Bitcoin did for money. That is to remove the need to rely on trusted third parties in order for individuals to transact with each other on a peer-to-peer basis. So the idea really is to disintermediate those financial institutions that I was just mentioning and remove them from the equation of, of, um, of finance. And so the compound protocol is a protocol that enables earning interest on digital assets. Um, Basically, the idea is if you own digital assets, you can supply them to the Compound Protocol and earn interest on them, which is paid by other users of the protocol who are borrowing those assets. And every user who borrows assets has to first supply assets to serve as collateral for the amount that they borrow. And in that way, the protocol can be um, self-secured through over-collateralization. And what's really exciting, I think, about the Compound Protocol is very unlike a traditional financial institution, the protocol is non-custodial. So if you supply assets to the protocol, they still belong to you. They're totally under your control. They're not subject to anyone else's possession or custody. You're not trusting a third party to manage those assets for you. Um, And also the system itself is autonomous. So there is no company that is running or operating the system on a day-to-day basis. It's really made up of and consists of a set of rules and procedures for how the marketplace will function. That's what we mean by a protocol. And those rules and procedures depend entirely on market forces of supply and demand. So there is no third party that is setting the interest rates. The interest rates are established algorithmically based purely on supply and demand. So it really is um, what we would describe as a financial primitive. It's a sort of a, a base foundation for how this type of financial transaction can be done without the need to rely on a trusted third party. And it's a very important primitive because obviously, you know, setting interest rates is a foundational function in any financial system. And of course, that's usually done by centralized third parties. But instead of a centralized third party, as you said, Compound uses a set of defined rules. Moreover, you guys made a big splash recently when you turned over governance over that set of defined rules, you know, that make up the protocol to the community, to the holders of comp tokens. So for those who aren't paying close attention to you all, can you talk a little bit about what that means and how that process unfolded? So as I mentioned, the protocol itself is autonomous. It's a a set of rules and procedures that self-execute on the Ethereum blockchain. However, there are some parameters of the protocol that are subject to being changed or upgraded. So, you know, this uh, question of governance is 
much less of a concern for a very simple, or at least relatively simple system like Bitcoin, where there really isn't any human decision-making required for the network to continue operating as it's designed. Basically, as long as everyone keeps running the same rules and procedures of the Bitcoin protocol, there's never going to be an issue with the, the basic financial activity on that blockchain of sending and receiving assets. But once you start applying those same principles to more complex financial activity, like creating interest rates, there are some parameters that do require ongoing human discretion, right? They can't be run completely by, uh, you know, machines and algorithms. Um, so just to give you an example of, of one of the elements of governance in a protocol like the Compound Protocol, um, I mentioned that the, the system establishes interest rates through market forces of supply and demand. But that uses an algorithm that selects certain parameters for the minimum amount of interest that can be paid, the maximum amount of interest that, that might be paid, and then the curve between those two points, depending on how much supply there is and how much demand there is. Well, you could imagine conditions in the world changing so that the interest rate model, that curve, should be different for a particular asset than the algorithm that we came up with when we first built the system. And so what that means is you need someone who can make that decision of whether those interest rate models should change. And this is true for a variety of other parameters in the protocol as well, such as how much collateral is required for certain assets to be borrowed, um, which assets should be supported by the system and, and you know, some other issues like that. Until recently, Compound Labs, my company, which originally developed the protocol, served as the sole administrator for the protocol. So we were solely responsible for making those decisions. Still very different from a typical uh, financial institution because as long as we didn't change any parameters, we had no role whatsoever in the operation of the system. But nonetheless, our goal was really and truly to disintermediate ourselves from that role as the administrator of the protocol. And the way that we did that was by transferring the power to make those decisions over the protocol to the community so that the users of the protocol can make those decisions instead of us. And uh, you know, that was a process that we started earlier this year. Um, we did that by creating a token, uh, which is another digital asset, which we called the compound governance token, which conveys governance rights to the holders of the token in order to propose and vote on any changes to those parameters. And, you know, when this happened, it was quite the event on crypto Twitter uh, and elsewhere. People were very excited to see this moment in DeFi history. And you had a front row to that. So, you know, what has it been like to watch it unfold? What has reception been like and how has it worked in practice so far? Um, it's been extremely exciting um, in a couple of different ways. Uh, so, you know, first of all, I do think that, um, you know, a lot of people were were very surprised, but also very encouraged and excited about the idea of the developer of one of these protocols giving up control of the protocol. You know, that sounds, I think, very odd to folks who aren't in the crypto industry, the idea that a company would build something valuable and then just give it away uh, to the users of the system is, is very unique. 
Um, but indeed, that is what we've done. And I think that that um, was very encouraging to people who weren't really sure if DeFi would or could meet its goals and, uh, you know, really grow into the type of system that, that is, you know, open and trust minimized that, that we've all been talking about for quite a while. So the reaction to it was extremely positive. Um, the system has been working extremely well. There's been an extraordinary level of participation in the governance system. Um, I think one of the coolest things for me personally is watching members of the community come up with their own ideas about what should happen to the protocol and then reducing those ideas into executable code that they then have proposed for the governance system to approve. And indeed, many of those changes have been approved and then they are automatically implemented once they are approved. So the protocol has been growing and changing truly without the involvement of Compound Labs, which is really exciting to see. You know, look, honestly, there's also been some uh, discouraging and, um, you know, less exciting aspects of this. I think we all know that uh, the crypto industry is still um, fairly full of people who view this all as just speculation and are only interested in, um, you know, what the prices of digital assets are and, and trying to make money by day trading. Um, and so I think especially on crypto Twitter, which you mentioned, a lot of the conversation has sort of moved away from um, the, the fundamental and exciting uh, revolutionary progress in the management of these open source protocols and moved more toward you know, speculative activity that's, uh, I think, less interesting to us. Um, but by and large, uh, you know, I think the reaction has been very positive and a lot of really... Um, intelligent and sharp people coming out with uh, really smart uh, analyses and takes on on the future of the space. Yeah, agree that it's better to focus on the potential of the technology rather than the price stuff. You know, though we are called HODL pack and HODL is a meme associated with price movements sometimes. But I also like to say that we can be HODL, you know, which is helping our distributed ledgers. But I digress. To speak to the potential of the tech, you know, we're recording this on Tuesday, July 28th. And, and tomorrow, leaders of some of the largest tech companies, including Facebook, Apple, Amazon and Google are going to be testifying before Congress about antitrust and probably a host of other things. So I was hoping you could talk a bit about community ownership of protocols in general and, you know, like what it means for the future of tech and the economy. I guess specifically, why is it an important innovation that we should be focused on supporting? Yes. I, and I think you're absolutely right to, to point out uh, sort of what the tech industry surrounding the internet has become, which is uh, a, a fairly small number of very large and powerful trusted third parties. And part of the ethos of the crypto industry as a whole is the idea that trusted third parties are security holes, right? There is an extraordinary amount of risk that we take by relying on and trusting these very large uh, institutions, um, either to you know, manage our identities or manage our data or manage our finances. So, you know, very recently we um, we saw a hack uh, of Twitter in which a lot of uh, very well-known folks, including in the political world, uh, had their accounts taken over. You know, this is a, a great example of the problem of trusting a third party to manage your credentials. 
Um, they, you know, unfortunately, they aren't always uh, trustworthy uh, in, in doing that. Um, but even going back before that, you know, when you think about the very large trusted third parties in the finance world, uh, you know, I think of things like the Equifax hack, where Equifax was um, managing a central database of, you know, dozens of millions of Americans' most private and important personal identifying information. And in one fell swoop, hackers were able to obtain, I think, something like 145 million social security numbers uh, associated with, with Americans' um, names and other information. You know, this is the problem that community ownership of protocols rather than companies tries to address. So for starters, it's really about, um, you know, instead of having to have these intermediaries that we rely on in between our economic activity or in between our financial transactions, being able to use what is essentially publicly owned infrastructure in order to engage in those daily activities or those, um, you know, really important business activities. There's also the question of aligning incentives between the owners or managers of a system and the users of that system. So, you know, when we talk about um, Facebook or Twitter, the social media giants, you know, one of the big issues that has come to the forefront recently is how they are using our data to turn a profit for their shareholders. So, you know, one way that Facebook does this is by selling access to our information, um, or at least, uh, you know, selling a platform that leverages our personal private information, or at least what we'd like to be private, for the benefit of advertisers who can then target us with, you know, either sales ads or sometimes political ads. Um, the reason that this happens is because there is a misalignment of incentives between Facebook, the company, and us, the users or customers of Facebook. Facebook has to weigh the question of what is best for them and their shareholders versus what is best for us, the users and customers. And the idea of community ownership of a DeFi protocol is eliminating that disparity in incentives. It's saying the people who use this system are also the people who own this system. And by aligning incentives between those two groups, you can have at least a better chance of governance decisions being made for the benefit of the users as opposed to for the benefit of a company or the shareholders. So when I talk about this being sort of a revolutionary idea, to me, that is what is most exciting about it, is trying to align incentives between the folks who are managing and the folks who are using these protocols. You know, I think we all agree that we need to spread that message as wide as possible. And Jake, you're a Hodelpack founding board member. So as you and our listeners know, you know, our goal is to support champions in Congress that get that message and, and that realize that we need to encourage crypto innovation in the U.S., so related to that, you know, I wanted to switch to some policy related topics. And to start off, you know, maybe you could give us your download on what you view as the most pressing policy issues that need to be addressed. I think when you're talking about something that seems so different from the systems that we've had before, um, it really requires rethinking a lot of the government's regulatory approach 
to uh, to the types of, of economic activity that we are now trying to put in the hands of users as opposed to leaving in the hands of centralized financial institutions. So I think when you have such a big shift, it becomes very unclear how traditional laws developed for an intermediated financial system can be reinterpreted and then applied to this new type of community-owned system. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of, of the policy issues that, that the industry is struggling with now is understanding how regulators are going to apply those traditional regulatory frameworks uh, to the new types of activities that we are enabling. And, you know, I can jump into some of the specifics about, uh, you know, areas where I think more clarity would be helpful. Um, but I think for, for starters, it's, it's just good to, to recognize that I think there's a lot more education that needs to be done. And, and this rests not on the shoulders of uh, folks in government or folks on the Hill, um, but rather us in the industry. I think that we need to do a better job of explaining what it is that we're building and why it's important. Um, and I think you know it's only with that background that we'll be able to make progress in working through some of these policy issues. Because if, if you don't understand uh, you know, the way that the system works and how it is different from the traditional world, then it's pretty hard to make any progress on you know how the laws can be applied or how they might need to change. To jump into some specific policy issues, last week we talked about the SEC's treatment of tokens and the application of securities law. Another thing that has received a lot of attention is anti-money laundering and the Bank Secrecy Act and you know how those interact with crypto. As a general counsel at a leading crypto project, what are some of the biggest challenges to navigate? We've taken a compound... Um, I guess you could call it a risk-averse approach to to regulatory issues. You know, we've tried our best, um, you know, even despite the sort of gray area of regulatory uncertainty in the space in general, to stay so far on the right side of compliance that we don't have to worry about those gray areas. And I, I think we've done an extremely good job of that. Um, you know, I think there are other companies out there who are perhaps... Uh, you know, interested in um, certain other types of digital assets that they perhaps want to issue or sell. And they're really struggling with understanding how regulators are going to interpret those, those laws. Um, you know, I think personally that some of those regulatory frameworks are pretty easy to apply, or, or at least that they don't need massive changes at this point. Uh, in order for the industry to to continue moving forward, so uh, taking the securities example uh, as as one, um, the SEC has actually given us a whole lot of very useful guidance explaining how the Howey test, which is the um, principle of law uh, that courts use to define an investment contract, which is a type of regulated security, the SEC has given us quite a lot of guidance in understanding how to apply the Howey test to digital assets that look like they may imply an investment contract between the issuer of the asset and a purchaser or holder of the asset. Um, I think where some members of the industry could benefit is um, getting some more clarity about the SEC's approach to specific issues implicated by these assets. So, you know, the SEC has given us, um, in the form of 
uh, a, a framework issued last April, a list of about 60 odd different factors that they consider to decide whether or not uh, a digital asset could be interpreted as an investment contract, which was a very helpful primer. Um, I think what, what also might be helpful is to understand which of those factors the SEC thinks is more or less important. I think one thing that um, other regulatory bodies have done that the SEC hasn't yet is defined the limits of its jurisdiction and when it actually believes that the laws don't apply or don't need to apply for the protection of investors. So, you know, as an example, um, FinCEN put out guidance last May on the application of the Bank Secrecy Act to crypto networks. And they were uh, very careful to say, here is where we think the Bank Secrecy Act does apply. Here's where we think it doesn't apply. And I think what would be really useful on the security side is for the SEC to say, here are some examples of digital assets that we think do not implicate investment contracts because of certain factors that we think are very important. And we've gotten that in the form of a couple of no action letters where the SEC has said that, um, for example, a token like the turnkey jet token, which is kind of like a reward program um, for a jet company, that those are not uh, investment contracts. But I think there's more that the SEC could do to clarify when it thinks that uh, you know, some of these assets don't implicate the securities laws. Yeah, so that's a good perspective on regulation from the company side of things. But how about from an individual's perspective? What are some of the things maybe that Congress can do directly or that they can direct regulators to do that would make it easier for individuals to participate in crypto networks as a consumer or an, you know some other type of participant? It's important to remember that the, the driving principle of a lot of the work that we're doing in this industry is about financial inclusion. Right. We, we want to create a system that is available to as many people as possible in as many places as possible. I mean, that's why the Bitcoin white paper uh, described Bitcoin as electronic cash, right? So very much like cash is available to anyone who can get their hands on a dollar bill. We want these systems to be available for as many people as possible because the traditional finance industry has, has really taken a different view and has excluded or underserved a lot of people from, from that system. One of the barriers to using crypto networks to improve access to the financial system and to address financial inclusion is when users of those systems don't understand what the legal or regulatory ramifications would be if they actually get involved. And I think the best example where more clarity is needed, and I, and I think you know perhaps congressional action is needed, is on the tax ramifications of using these uh, using these assets. So you know right now the IRS's predominant interpretation is that any transaction involving a digital asset is a taxable event, as in if you get Bitcoin, and at the time that you get it, it's worth ten thousand dollars, and then you spend it on a coffee somewhere, uh, but by the time you've spent it, the value has gone up to $10,005, you now owe taxes on the difference in the form of capital gains. And that I think is really unworkable. And also as a policy matter, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, I don't think that the amount of revenue 
that is raised by taxing that type of transaction, a consumer transaction where someone is spending Bitcoin as money rather than holding it for investment purposes, is really what the tax code is designed or intended to do, um, or that the amount that will be raised is, is material to the budget. So, you know, I think that, you know, for starters, it would be great to get some more clarity either from the IRS or frankly, at this point, uh, from new legislation um, that would create an exemption there for de minimis transactions in cryptocurrencies. That's, you know, one example of uh, probably many where we could provide more clarity for people who want to use these systems as opposed to those of us in the industry who are trying to build the systems. And another question I wanted to ask regarding policy is around this idea that we need to change our regulations to promote innovation here in the U.S. or else we risk losing it to other countries. Do you think that's true first? And if so, is drastic action needed or is it a matter of stringing together some of these smaller things that we've alluded to today? I think we are at risk of this industry moving offshore. Uh, I think we've already seen this in some aspects of the industry you know, there are a number of uh, of industry players who have decided we don't understand how we can comply with U.S. regulations. So we're simply going to leave the country and we're going to build our business somewhere else because we're going to go somewhere where we know what the regulations are. So we have certainty about how we can comply. And, you know, look, this is not a new issue for the crypto industry. I think one of the reasons that uh, that the United States has you know, still now, of course, the best and strongest capital market in the world and is the best environment for most businesses to, to develop is certainty about how the government will approach their work. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of hesitation to set up a business in a place like China because you just never know when the government might decide to shut you down. And, you know, one of the great things about our economy here in the U.S., is knowing that if you play by the rules, then you will be treated fairly. And I think that there is a risk of continuing forward with this degree of regulatory uncertainty that will, will make some people think, you know, we don't want to do this in the United States. We want to, we want to build uh, whatever business or develop whatever protocol in some other jurisdiction where we are less concerned about the government coming to shut us down. And I think it's important to remember that one way or another, these systems will be built and these businesses will be, uh, you know, will be founded. Um, that's one of the, the great things, I think, about open source software, which is, you know, it really is in sort of an American way, the type of industry where anyone who has a great idea can build it and can see if it will get uh, traction in the market. And that's really what we're seeing in the DeFi industry now. A lot of people who are experimenting with a lot of very interesting um, and very new types of technology. And that will continue somewhere. And I think we should be very careful to make sure that it happens here in the United States, both because it will be to the benefit of, uh, of U.S. citizens, um, both in terms of job creation and in terms of building systems that uh, reflect our principles um, but also because, uh, you know, at scale, these systems do have uh, relevance on the geopolitical stage. And, and we're seeing that in, uh, you know, in a number of places around the world. For example, China is advancing 
their own centrally planned blockchain-based solution for central bank digital currencies. And I think what we want to do is encourage a fair and free market solution that can compete well against the types of, of systems that a, a country like China is going to develop. So we, we should take this very seriously. Um, in terms of whether it requires drastic action, I actually don't think it does. I think that our economy and our capital markets are so strong that if we just let them do their work, then you know businesses will want to be in the United States. I, I think there are very few... Uh, developers or companies who would say, all else being equal, we would rather not be in the United States. And that's why we still see the vast majority of funding uh, coming from US-based venture capital firms. And we still see, I think, the leaders of the industry in any number of different segments, whether it's exchanges like Coinbase or custodians like Anchorage um, or others, who still are and, and want to be in the United States. So I, I don't think drastic action is needed. I, I think what we need is more clarity about the government's general approach to the industry. There is still fear that the government views crypto as a scam or as a threat. And you know, folks like me and, and I think you, Tyler, are working very hard to make sure that um, our message is heard that this technology is for the benefit of the country, not to its detriment. And if we just had a little bit more of that type of confidence coming from the government, uh, that that would be very helpful. And you know, a, a model for that might be uh, the chairman of the CFTC, uh, who's been very positive in acknowledging the benefits and the promises of of crypto networks and open financial protocols, while also explaining that he is going to make sure the CFTC enforces all of the regulations that it needs to and should enforce in the derivative space. And I think that if we got the same uh, type of confident um, and clear message from leadership across the agencies, including at the SEC and within Treasury, that you know that would be really helpful. Uh, in terms of making sure that that companies don't flee the United States for other jurisdictions. For our final question, I would love to hear if you have any parting thoughts for our listeners, you know, whether they're in the crypto industry or if they're more DC type folks that want to learn more about crypto. Do you have any final thoughts before we end our conversation today? I guess my the, the message I would leave with your audience, uh, and, you know, especially for for everyone else who's uh, who's here in DC with us is it's really important to separate the signal from the noise in this industry. I think more than most industries, there's just a lot of garbage out there uh, because you know there's so much speculation that comes up around what at least originated as unregulated markets for, uh, for assets that were dominated by hype and unfulfilled promises. Uh, you know, Bitcoin often gets described as... Um, as a revolution in money uh, wrapped up in a get-rich-quick scheme. And I think it's really important to look through all of that noise to see the signal of the value of what we're building. Um, I think that that's uh, you know, incumbent on, on both uh, you know, folks in government and also, like I said, those of us in the industry to, to make sure that we're boosting that signal. Um, but I would say you know, we're happy to take the time to explain what it is we're building and why we think that it provides 
you know, really strong consumer protections, why it is, um, you know, very positive for the U.S. economy, for the strength of the U.S. dollar abroad, uh, and, you know, why the U.S. government should support development in this industry. So I would say it's worth taking the time to, um, to get to that point of understanding and, uh, you know, reach out anytime because we're very happy to, to um, you know, help do that education and, and make sure that our message comes through. Awesome, Jake. Thanks for your time today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. Thank you for listening to Crypto in Congress presented by Hodelpack. If you'd like to learn more about Hodelpack and our mission, check us out at www.hodelpack.org or follow us on Twitter at Hodelpack. Also, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to get exclusive updates and access to transcripts from each episode. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.